Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Brett Scher, lead practitioner at My Boundless Health. The website is myboundlesshealth.com. So, uh, Dr. Scher, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today, Richard. Just a quick yeah. correction, though. My the, the better website is lowcarbcardiologist.com. So, my, my business is My Boundless okay. Health, but the, the better website is lowcarbcardiologist.com. Great. Yeah, we'll have both. Okay. So tell me, what's what, so what's the premise, you know, if it's not obvious from the website, what's the premise of your work in medicine? Yeah, well, you know, I've been a cardiologist now for uh, over 15 years, um, including training and everything, going on over 20 years, it seems like. And one thing has been clear to me in this whole process, and, and that our healthcare system is broken, and it's badly broken. And it, it doesn't really address the main issues affecting people, and it doesn't provide the most helpful solutions that are really going to transform people's lives and help them transform their health. So, so the goal of, of Boundless Health and the goal of the work I'm doing at lowcarbcardiologist.com is to, is to help people get access to that, to get access to information um, that is not being promoted by our contemporary healthcare system, and to get access to a practitioner who can spend more time and think outside the box and see the bigger picture and really trying to find the right solution for each individual rather than trying to shoehorn everybody into, into the same box to say the same treatment applies to everybody because that just that doesn't work. I mean, we are all individuals. So to assume that we should all be eating the same diet, we should all be doing the same type of exercise, we should all be taking the same medications is, is just ridiculous. So it, it's trying to give people more of a, an individualized approach and individualized care that's going to help them transform their health and, and feel better and improve their life. So what does that uh, look like? I mean, you can't, I would say, tackle the entire, you know, healthcare process at once. What particular points are you looking at first for customization? Yeah, one of the most important things I'm looking at is, is how people live their life, right? You, there's so much conflicting evidence out there about, you know, low-fat diet, low-carb diet. One's going to kill you, then the other's going to kill you. And Carbs are great. Carbs are poison. You know, the, the first thing I'm looking at is, is how someone's nutrition fits into their lifestyle and, and then all the other pillars of their lifestyle. So their exercise program, should you be doing high intensity interval training or do you just need to start, you know, moving your body and going for walks more? What's going to fit into your current state of health and what's going to help move the needle the most for you? How are you managing your stress? How are you sleeping? Um, how are your social interactions in your family life and how's all that impacting your health? You know, that's, that's the place to start. And that's the place that you, you really can't talk about um, in most doctor's offices because they're so focused on checking off your medical problems and checking on your prescription medications and checking uh, some basic lab results that you don't get into that type of discussion. And for me, that's the most important discussion because that's what that's what really can have the greatest impact on your life and your health. And then it's also evaluating your medications. We are, there's no question, we are an over-medicated, over-prescribed society right now um, with you know, estimations of 60% of 
adults taking some sort of prescription medication is un- unbelievable. Wow. Um, so, you know, it's a re- really reassessing your prescriptions and what is the purpose that you're, that you're, that you've been given that prescription for? What are you hoping to achieve with that prescription? And what is the likelihood that it will be achieved? And, you know, as a cardiologist, statins is, is the primary one that I run into all the time. Um, you know, people are amazed when they, when they realize that the, the statin trials show we need to treat about 140 people for five years to save one heart attack. I mean, that's the robust really? data for primary prevention. Yeah, for primary prevention, for people who haven't had heart attacks and haven't had strokes or stents or bypass surgery. So we're excluding those people. Primary prevention, we have to treat about 140 people for five years to save one heart attack. I mean, to me, that's that's not yeah, that's crazy. good, good odds. That's a horrible success rate. That's like, yeah. Huh. Right. So if you look at it from what's the best medication we have to reduce your risk of a heart attack, the answer is a statin. So if you want to do absolutely everything possible to reduce your risk, you take a statin. But the same medication, you say, well, you, you can, you know, if we treat 140 people like you for five years, we can save one heart attack. It's the same same medication, same situation, just a different way of looking at the discussion. And, and I like to phrase it both ways with, with my clients that I see. Look, if you want to do absolutely everything, if your father had a heart attack when he was 40, you know, and, and your, all your uncles have had heart attacks, and that's the thing you are most concerned about, and you want to do everything possible, okay, then starting the statin may seem reasonable. But if you want to play the odds and the percentages as the general population, then the odds aren't quite in your favor. I wouldn't take those odds in Vegas. So what do you do with patients then? I mean, you, there's tons of areas to address, but how do you customize um, your doctoring for patients without, uh, you know, consuming tons of time and energy? Like, what have you done to make it work? <laughs> That's a great question. So the the short answer is to do it right and to do it best. You sort of do have to consume lots of time. You do have to spend a, a lot of time with the patients, educating them. And listening to them, right? Because not everybody comes from a different background and from a different perspective. And, you know, to take someone who grew up on a cattle ranch and has been eating steak and potatoes ever since they were a kid and try and get them to go vegetarian, that's not going to work. So you got to, you have to know who you're dealing with, right? And vice versa. Someone who's been vegan and morally believes that's the right way to go to try and get them to be a carnivore is not going to work. So you, you have to spend the, those are, you know, basic examples, but you have to spend the time to get to know each individual and you have to educate them and work with them. And so, and part of it is I have a program, a six month program that is a series of videos um, and a series of handouts and you know, recipes. And so really to get more touch points with people to, to keep them on track and to educate them as much, much as possible. And then have a, a longer one-on-one visit every month with them to, to see how they're doing and answer all their questions and, and guide things as it goes. Because that's the other aspect of this is, is rarely do people's lives and their health and their health programs travel in a straight line. There are always detours. There's always road bumps. Nobody's perfect. And the key is helping people understand that and helping people bounce back from, from any road bumps that they may run into. And that's that's where the support part comes in. So it is a, a labor-intensive process, but that's where you're going to see the best results. And, you know, the, the other things like whether it's you know, the book I wrote or whether it's my podcast or my blog on my website, you know, the idea is to get as much information out there as possible in hopefully an easy-to-digest way uh, to help people really make sense of the science and cut through the controversies 
and understand what's going to help them better. So, so personally, I'm, I sort of take a two-tiered approach. One is just to put as much information out there as possible. And the second is to work with people on a very close one-on-one -on -one manner um, with uh, a lot of detailed information and a very intense individually tailored program. So what, you know, how do you step someone through the program? Like you, I would guess you do some sort of evaluation first, at least to silo them into, you know, four or five, um, maybe archetypes, or do you go completely custom? Like what's your intake process? What's your initial screening process look like? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So the initial screening process is, is a one-on-one -on -one consult that's anywhere from, you know, an hour to two hours, depending on how much there is to go over. Um, and that's where you sort of set the framework of, of what you want the general framework to look like. What are the main issues that need to be addressed? Which ones need to be addressed first? Because one of the worst things we can do is give you, here are the 10 things you need to work on. You know, good luck. Yeah, that doesn't work. It's, it's way too <laughs> overwhelming. So it, the first step is prioritizing, you know, finding out what the main pillars are that you need to work on, what the specific interventions are, and which need to come first. Because the idea is not to have you make a change that you can make for the next few weeks. The idea is to have you make a change that you can integrate into your life, into who you are as a person, so it becomes a routine habit. And that takes longer. Um, and it also means you usually have to work on one or at most two things at a time rather than trying to shotgun and do everything at once. So in the initial consultation, the big part is trying to identify uh, what those are for each individual. Um, and then, you know, if they start on the program, um, you know, you may you may tailor it a little bit differently depending on what that is. Um, and, and that's what's so interesting. You know, one of the hardest things is designing uh, exercise program for people because some people that I see are competitive triathletes and they're going to have a very different exercise recommendation than somebody who is sedentary and, and hasn't exercised in 20 years, right? So you can't just design sort of one program uh, for everybody. So that type of thing does definitely have to be uh, and individualized and evaluated separately. Hmm. Um, are you able to say that even though everyone's different, are there still, again, a certain fixed number of archetypes that most people fall into, or is it so diverse that you really have to go completely custom for everyone? That's a good question. I mean, I guess, I guess if I was pinned down, I could say there are some archetypes that, that people fall into. And one is the people with preexisting heart disease. So I have, I see a number of people who have had stents or heart attacks or bypass. And I'm obviously going to treat them very differently than someone who hasn't. Um, and then I see the people who are, are at much higher risk because of family history or certain blood tests or, you know, familial hypercholesterolemia or other genetic uh, modifications that they have. And I'm going to treat them in a certain way. And then there's the um, sort of the more healthy, um, less risk population who wants to optimize their health and reduce their risk of developing disease in the future. I'm going to treat them in a certain way. And then you can put them into buckets a little bit further. Uh, I see a lot of people who are on a ketogenic diet, low carb diet, or, or um, people who are interested in going that way. Um, you know, I'm going to treat them a little bit differently than someone who is on a standard American diet who comes to see me. Um, so, you know, there are definitely buckets you can put them in along the way, but for the most part, it's everybody's their own bucket. And I think that's, I think that's yeah. an important take home. It's definitely ideally best not to put people in, in a, you know, a few buckets or one bucket as normal medicine does. But if you have to, at least at the start, I guess. Right. But, but that's part of the problem, right? Like when it comes to, I, you know, I use statins a lot as an example, but now we have this risk calculator. So you, you type in 
someone's LDL, their blood pressure, their HDL, um, whether they have diabetes, whether they have a family history, you know, you put that into a, a risk calculator, it spits out a number and, and you base your decision on that number. So everybody with a certain number is treated exactly the same. And uh, to me, that's absurd. <laughs> I just think yeah, that's, it is. It is. that's ridiculous, but that's where medicine's going. That's been like the biggest advancement in lipid therapy in the past, you know, 10 years was, was this 2000, I guess it was probably the 2013 update, maybe it was a while ago now, but um, maybe more recent than that. But, but with this calculator, that's really sad, though. yeah, that's sad. yeah, yeah it, um, it really is. And now with the PCSK9 inhibitors, a, a more powerful drug for treating cholesterol, they're saying everybody's cholesterol needs to be even lower because there was one study that showed you can reduce your heart attack risk by around 1% by driving people's LDL down as low as 30. I mean, that's, again, oh, the, that a study like that should not be taken to then apply to everybody uniformly. Um, it, it's yeah. just, it's not proper a way of helping people improve their lives. Well, I'm guessing because, you know, you gave the example of statins and you said they're our best drug for, you know, for lowering, uh, for heart attack risk. And the, the results are so pathetically poor that, I mean, how much of a remedy is diet to you? Is it 99% of the solution or is it, you know, if you just had to put a, a number to it or does it really depend on the person or you know, where do you fall there? Well, I wouldn't even say diet. I would say lifestyle because that okay. diet is, is a huge part of it. No question. But lifestyle um, is, is I'd say 70% of it. And there's um, studies that back that up. You know, there's a study published in journal American college of cardiology back in 2014, I think it was um, that said 78% of all first time heart attacks could be avoided with lifestyle. I mean, that was traumatic <laughs> to see that. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there was another study in new England journal of medicine that looked at those at the highest genetic risk for heart attacks. And if you followed three out of four lifestyle, healthy lifestyle parameters, you decreased your risk of a heart attack by 50%. So, I mean, these are, these are pretty impressive numbers that have nothing to do with drugs, nothing to do with cholesterol. They have all to do with how you're living your life. So pretty, pretty powerful and pretty impressive. Yeah, that's super impressive. Um, so, you know, you being a cardiologist for 15 to 20 years, you seeing so many patients, you know, I'm sure you've seen a lot of bad and some good. What are the things that stick out at you? What, are, what observations have surprised you? I know you've given some already, but you know, now in your practice, what do you see as maybe the, uh, the best tools in the toolbox for people to use to help themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. The, well, to, to answer the first part of that question, what surprised me was the number of people having heart attacks with quote unquote normal cholesterol levels and number of people having heart attacks while taking their statins. Um, and the fact that medicine as a whole has not paid any attention to insulin resistance um, and, you know, reversing diabetes rather than just managing diabetes. But now, luckily, there's been more and more information coming out. It hasn't infiltrated uh, contemporary medicine as a whole, but ho is starting to at least a little bit that we need to pay more attention to diabetes and insulin resistance. And the framework of treating diabetes is shifting from let's just kind of manage it and treat it to an adequate level. And instead is let's reverse it. Let's reverse diabetes. And that's the work that Verta Health has been doing with their study. There's studies that they've published and the way they treat people. And that's just 
you know, it's revolutionary and yet it's so simple. Like, why would we just want to manage a disease that still puts people at a huge risk of heart attacks and strokes and death when we can actually reverse it? And the one of the best examples is, um, you know, the recommendation for treating people with diabetes is to treat them to a hemoglobin A1C down to seven. And so hemoglobin A1C is a marker of your average glucose of the past three months. And if you look at the graphs of where your cardiovascular risk starts to increase, it's in like the upper fives. And then it makes a sharp increase around 6.5. Yet the recommendations are to treat to a level of seven. Because if you treat with drugs below that more aggressively to get them lower than that, you actually start causing more harm than good. So the recommendation Mm -hmm. says, let's just treat everybody to seven and leave it there. But that's our drug-focused approach. Instead, we need to say, well, why does that happen? Well, that happens because we're pumping people full of insulin. We're getting complications from insulin. We're giving them medications to try and increase their body's natural insulin production. And all this does is this gives you awful results because it's the wrong approach. Instead, you need studies like the Verta Health studies that show that they can reduce people going to A1C down into the low sixes. You can reverse diabetes. You can get people off their medications with nutrition. All they're doing is a low-carb diet, and they're having these amazing mm. effects. And that yet, <laughs> yet our medicine culture is still treat people with drugs down to seven, and that's just so backwards, so backwards. So that's one of the yeah, biggest tools is. we can have is recognizing insulin resistance and diabetes and treating it, reversing it, getting rid of it, not just trying to manage it. Um, all right. So nutrition obviously is a huge influence on people's health. You know, uh, you're going the low carb route. Does low carb include low sugar? And what are some oh, yeah, of the parameters absolutely. that, uh, you know, when you say low carb, uh, you give a certain number of grams per day that someone should strive for, you know, and what are some of the parameters of it? Yeah. And so here's where we get into individualization again. So, you know, obviously I'm a low carb cardiologist, so I'm definitely in favor of low carb nutrition. But that doesn't mean I think it's right for everybody. So again, um, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Now, I think it's a crime that low-carb is not a regular part of the conversation in every medical institution in the world. But I would not say it has to be the number one diet that everybody is put on. It just has to be part of the conversation. It has to be an option. So, And the starting point is obvious. You know, Reduce the added sugars. Reduce the processed foods and the packaged foods. Um, reduce the industrial seed oils and the, all the junk food and, you know, eat real food, eat whole real food. If everybody just started with that, you know, from a population standpoint, the, the amount of chronic diseases would, would just plummet, which would be fantastic. Then you talk about mm. optimizing your health from there. And for some, that's going to be a very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet. So less than 30 grams of carbohydrates. For some people, it's going to be a low-carb diet that's not necessarily ketogenic, which could be anywhere from 50 to 100 grams of carbohydrates. And for some people, you know, they don't really care about limiting their carbohydrates, and some of their parameters may not say that they need to, um, and they can have more. But the other, the other aspect is to not just give them a diet and say, see you later. I mean, it's, it's, having right. them, <laughs> it's having them change in a way and monitoring them to see what effect it's having, both subjectively, how are you feeling, how are your cravings, how's your energy, how are you sleeping, all those things, and objectively, what are your blood markers doing, what are your inflammatory markers doing, what's your insulin doing, what are your lipids doing, 
uh, and then you're following calcium scores or carotid thickness testing. What are those doing? And you know, this it it can get uh, very intricate and very complicated, and that's the best way to treat each individual. So the pushback is, well, how do you do this on a population basis? And that's true. It can be more right, challenging yeah. to do this on a population basis. But if you're keeping people out of the hospital, you're preventing heart attacks, you're reversing diabetes, you're improving everybody's health, then how can we afford to not do it? That's my question. Well, one stepping stone is that, you know, I've, I've observed from talking to a bunch of diabetes doctors, the average diabetes doctor sees, you know, I guess it's like three to 4,000 patients. So they're influencing potentially three to 4,000 people, which is a lot. So if, if doctors got on board with this, if a substantial number got on board, that would start to create the huge numbers of the hundreds of thousands of people that could get positive interventions. So if we cloned you and there were a hundred of you that followed your protocol and each of them influenced 3,000 people, that's, you know, a ton of people, hundreds of thousands of people. So I can yeah, see that as one true. way. Right, yeah. right. But, you know, one of the problems is you mentioned diabetes doctors. So a lot of diabetes clinics um, and diabetes educators get funding from the American Diabetes Association and they're trained according to guidelines by the American Diabetes Association, which still says, you know, carbohydrates are an important part of every meal and right. you know, people should be eating whole grains and, and actively adding carbohydrates to their meal despite being diabetic. And I mean, all you have to do is take a diabetic, check their blood sugar, have them eat healthy whole grains and whole wheat pasta and whole wheat bread and check their blood sugar an hour or two later and see the incredible spike and say, huh, maybe that's not the best yeah. message yet. That's yeah. still the message that's being promoted in diabetes clinics across the country. Yeah, no, I, I got, you know, personally, I got close to it. Um, I went to a clinic like that and they have all the, you know, they, they want you to have all these artificial sweeteners and, you know, all the other stuff. And I, I was able to fix it with diet. You know, I'm on a close to a ketogenic diet, you know, low carb, low sugar, and that, you know, my blood markers increased dramatically and not in a, in a positive direction. I mean, but, um, you know, they were very surprised and they advised me the exact same thing you said, you know, so, so yeah, I wanted to ask you a couple of items out there that what's your opinion? Are they helpful or not? So one is again, artificial sweeteners in place of regular sugar, good, bad, yeah. ugly, and why? <laughs> well, so it's better, right? So an art, most artificial sweeteners are going to be better and the best ones are going to be stevia or monk fruit or erythritol. Um, much better than the more chemical oriented ones because they're the more natural ones rather than the chemical ones that you're going to see in your average Diet Coke. But even then, it's still a problem. And the problem is how sweet our taste buds have become, or, or I should say what our taste buds have become used to defining as sweet. If you would go mm -hmm. back a couple of generations, you know, the stuff we eat now would be so horribly sweet that nobody would be able to tolerate it. And that's the thing, your taste buds change over time. And so ideally where I want my clients to get is to actually alter their taste buds so they no longer crave that sweet tasting because then you no longer crave regular sugar. You no longer crave the sweets. You no longer crave desserts because you've gotten rid of that sweet tooth craving. And artificial sweeteners can, can slow that process down because you're still getting that sweet taste. You're still training your taste buds. So that's where it's sort of a slippery slope, double-edged sword with the artificial sweeteners. But if you know, it's hard for some people to go cold turkey, so to speak. So you need to transition them off. So if they're putting three scoops of sugar in their coffee in the morning, you get them to switch to stevia, um, and then you slowly wean down the amount of stevia that they're getting in their coffee. 
um, you know, it's that type of a approach. So it's not just, you know, good or bad, but it's what approach do you take with it? Hmm. Right, what about um, exogenous ketones that's come on the market yeah. the past few years? You, what do you yeah. think about? Yeah, exogenous ketones are fascinating. I, I find this subject so incredibly fascinating. I had a great podcast interview uh, with Dustin Schaefer um, on the Low Carb Cardiologist podcast that, that I have. Um, he's a big proponent of exogenous ketones. He's part of the, the company Prove It that, that does Keto OS and Keto Max. And, you know, I think um, they certainly have a role. Now, the question is, you know, what is the best role? And so for, um, you know, getting people into deeper level of ketosis to treat a, treat a seizure disorder, I think it's great. Um, there's actually some evidence coming out for treating, treating and or preventing traumatic brain injury, which I think is going to be very interesting to follow and see come out, um, to help people in the beginning, get into ketosis and get past the keto flu and sort of feel the benefits of ketosis as you're transitioning. I think it could be helpful for low carb athletes who are ketogenic and want to see if they get an athletic performance boost by increasing their ketone levels. I think it could be incredibly helpful. Um, where I have a little bit of trouble with it is the concept of eat whatever you want and take these exogenous ketones and you're in ketosis and you'll lose weight and be healthy. That bothers right. me because that one, that's a situation we've never seen in the history of mankind. We've never had a situation where you can have high carbohydrates, high glucose and high ketones, but also the, the biggest benefit of ketosis uh, is low insulin, low glucose, low carbohydrates in your system. So you're, if you're counteracting that by eating anything you want, but taking exogenous ketones and think you're doing yourself benefit, that's where I have a pretty significant problem with it. But as I said, there are plenty of situations, um, like I mentioned, where I think it, they could be fairly helpful. Well, how about if you are trying to do a good job and you're you know, on a low-carb, low-sugar diet, and then you supplement with exogenous ketones, and you're, you're not trying to abuse them, but you, help, you want them to drive you further into the... Uh, you know, a ketotic state, do you think then it may be helpful or not needed? Yeah. So then it's, then it's, um, again, sort of individualized because some people are going to feel dramatically different with a beta hydroxybutyrate level of two compared to 0.8. Um, and if you can't get, so if you're that person who feels much better at two and you can't get to that level, um, by intermittent fasting and, and changing your macros around a little bit, and you need a little extra boost, and you know you're going to benefit, then sure. Um, then I think it's probably worth it to try. You know, some people are going to get a, a dramatic difference in their mental clarity and their ability to focus um, at a higher BHB level or a deeper level of ketosis. And so using um, exogenous ketones to get you there certainly could seem reasonable. Um, but there are mm. other people who are going to feel exactly the same at 0.5 as they are at 2.5. And so for them to increase their ketone levels without any meaningful difference, I'm not sure is necessarily beneficial. Okay. And then yeah, you mentioned intermittent fasting. That's what I was going to ask you about next. Do you recommend that for your patients and, you know, suggestions on starting and length of the fast? And do you think it's really helpful or needed? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I do think it's very helpful and needed. Um, you know, some of the best science that we have about longevity is really focusing on fasting right now. Um, whether it's something like a five-day fast or a fasting mimicking diet, or whether it's a time-restricted eating for, you know, 18-6 type protocol um, and everything in between, um, it, you know, it's all benefiting in some way or another. And so the main, the main concepts are you want your insulin low, 
You want your stimulation of your nutrient sensors to be low. Um, so some that people may have heard of are, are mTOR or AMP kinase. Um, you want to stimulate autophagy, which is sort of like your cellular housekeeping where you're cleaning up all your disease and, and not so healthy cells um, so that you can replace, you can recycle the good parts and sort of replace them with new cells. Now, the harder question to answer is what is the best level of fasting or the duration of fasting to achieve all these? So I think the, the easy answer is if you can do five days, you're hitting all the right parts. And that's what the science has shown that you can get stem cell regeneration and that you can get, um, you can get um, improved cellular housekeeping and autophagy, lower IVF1. But five days is tough. People don't like doing five day fast. Um, so are you oh, still going to get benefit from, you know, an 18, 18 hour fast, six hour eating window? Absolutely. You're still lowering your insulin. You're still lowering your nutrient sensor stimulation. Um, you're likely still lowering IGF-1 to a degree. Um, you're still improving your health. So I, I'm a big fan of people doing an 18-6 type protocol. And then once a quarter, twice a year, something like that, throwing in a five-day fast and maybe a one-day fast, you know, every couple of weeks. And it's this type of cyclical nature that I think is so important. Because um, one, it mimics what we did in the wild, so to speak, as we evolved and, mm. um, way back when our ancestors. But two, it also gives your body breaks where it can take care of the things it needs to take care of to make your cells healthier. It's not constantly dealing with an onslaught of nutrition, even if it's healthy nutrition, a constant supply of nutrients coming in is something our bodies did not necessarily evolve with and aren't necessarily equipped for. You know, even studies like sure. breast cancer survival studies show that those who go 12 hours between meals have improved survival rates. And that's just 12 hours. I mean, that's, that shouldn't be that hard. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of incorporating all different types of, of fasting into someone's protocol. Okay, that's great. Um, you know, I don't want to ask you endlessly, but any other major tools that you found that really can help people besides the ones we mentioned? Yeah, sleep, sleep, sleep. I think sleep is so important. And not just for what it does for your body, but what it does for, for your mind. Because when you are chronically underslept or even acutely underslept, you're going to make bad choices. I mean, I think that's very clear and we can all relate to that. Um, and so the more often that happens, the more often you make bad choices, the more often your health is going to suffer. But then there's the physical side of things of what can happen. I mean, actually sleep disturbances affect your hormone levels. They affect your blood pressure. They affect your cortisol, your leptin, your ghrelin. Um, so not only are you making bad decisions, but your body is already sort of having a deleterious effect. And it's, we don't, we don't, um, we don't prioritize sleep very much. It's, it's a badge of honor to say, ah, I only need four hours of sleep or ah, I only got a couple hours of sleep last night. Mm. And we're sort of a, a do more, work more, work harder kind of society um, where, you know, if you, you know, when you shows up to work saying bragging that they slept nine hours last night, you know, instead of <laughs> bragging about how late they stayed up to work. So, so I think our society has it a little bit backwards and we need to all prioritize our sleep more um, to feel good, to make good decisions and to, to help our bodies achieve a greater level of health. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So yeah, last, last question or so. Um, I know you can only work with so many, many, so many people. I don't know if you can work remotely, but interested people that listen to the podcast, how can they either get in contact with you or find other doctors like you that you may know of or you know, can they look for certain attributes that a doctor would have that would tell them, mm, 
this one's more likely than others to to talk about the things that that you talk about. Yeah, great, great question. So to answer the first part of that question, how can they work with me? So I do see I do see clients remotely. Um, you know, those who I see remotely, I I can't function as their actual physician. But uh, the majority of my clients, actually, I see that way, and I help guide them as they're going through their health journey with their uh, stable of physicians. And I communicate with their doctors to make sure we're all on the same page. And I, you know, I give them that other opinion uh, to look at things from a different light um, and help them with their lifestyle and do uh, more lifestyle health coaching. And, and I, I really enjoy that, that part of working with people. So you know, through my website, lowcarbcardiologist.com, uh, there's a link there to sign up for consults with me. And, and I really enjoy working with people that way. And I've seen some tremendous success. Um, where can you find other doctors who think this way? You know, dietdoctor.com and lowcarbusa.org. Um, those are a couple great websites that have links to physicians who um, are low carb. And usually if a doctor is low carb, they're more open-minded than your average physician because they're sort of going against the grain of popular teaching. So um, that's one place to start. And the other is, you know, MDs who have, who have altered, changed their practice to become functional medicine providers are almost always going to be much more open-minded and willing to spend more time with you and look at things from a broader perspective. So, you know, I'm a big fan of functional medicine docs. Um, you know, one downside is sometimes they over test more than they need to, but that's obviously individualized. Um, uh, but yeah, and the other is, you know, I, <laughs> this is a interesting thing I wrote in a blog a little while ago. Um, I said, you want to pick someone who's been in practice more than seven years, but less than 20 years. And, and although that's of course not always true, but you want someone who's been around long enough, who's confident in what they're doing and can make up their own mind, but not someone who's been around so long that they're just ingrained with the way things have always been done. So for some people that's helpful. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, Brett, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, I'm glad there's doctors like you out there instead of the, uh, just the ones that are out there right now that, you know, push on you, uh, stuff that probably a, a drug rep told them to push and you know, who knows what else. So, so thanks yeah. again for coming. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. You've been listening to almost here around the corner of future technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.